I rejoiced greatly at the end of last month because my favorite team in any sport, the San Antonio Spurs, won the right by merit of their many losses last season to the first draft pick of the NBA draft. And they used it on a 19-year-old named Victor Wimbenyama. Wimby, for short. He is considered the best prospect since LeBron James. At 7 feet 5 inches tall, he's a player who can dribble, shoot, and pass like a guard, who can block shots like a center, but also guard smaller players outside on the wing. And there is so much potential and excitement for what could happen with him as a player. Maybe he could follow in the steps of David Robinson and Tim Duncan. But so far, he has scored exactly zero points in an NBA regular season game. There isn't reality yet, but there is potential, and there is hope, and there is expectation. We love uh, things like this, don't we? And, and the reality don't, doesn't always match up with what the hope and expectation is. We love all sorts of things because they are new and give us some sort of hope for the future. I think that's one of the reasons why we love births so much. There is anticipation through the pregnancy. And then at the birth, there is so much excitement, so much potential uh, before some of the realities set in of what having a brand new baby really brings. And yet there is much joy. There is much joy about the, the child and what he or she is and what they could be, what they could become in the future. And we commemorate our births, the births of our children, with birthdays, right? Every year we commemorate that this happened and it was important and we appreciate uh, everything that has happened since. Every year is supposed to be a celebration of who they are and who they are becoming. Those moments of joy, however powerful they are, are still in some ways just about potential, about possibility. And how much more joyous is a birth that brings with it the certainty of accomplishing God's purpose? The certainty of the availability of God's salvation, the certainty of the fulfillment of God's plans and perfect sacrifice. And that's why the birth of Jesus was a moment of such joy, joy to the world, because of the certainty of what he was to accomplish according to the plans, purposes, and will of God. Come, the coming of Jesus was and is truly an occasion of rejoicing, glad tidings of good things. And if you have your Bible with you, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 2? Luke chapter 2, and we'll begin reading in verse 8. One of the great advantages of being the local evangelist is when you're teaching Bible class and you have way more stuff to cover than what you have time to cover in a 40 minute class, you can just preach a sermon on Sunday night and expand upon some of those things. Read with me, if you would, beginning in Luke chapter 2, beginning, uh, let's begin in verse 7. And she, Mary, brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, a feed trough, because there was no room for them in the end. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Now, just as an aside, I cannot tell you how many hundreds of, of images I look for trying to find a good image of the angel with the shepherds. I do not believe such an image exists. 
for them to be filled with great fear at the appearance of this angelic being out in the field by themselves. I mean, we've all been thing where things got a little weird, you know, and we're a little uncertain. Imagine this angelic being appearing to these men late at night. And they were afraid, greatly afraid. Uh, it's not quite as cute as all of the images I could find. But notice verse 10. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. We think about the, the seraphim and the cherubim and all of the angelic beings, a multitude of angels praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told to them. What an occasion. An occasion of great joy, an occasion of praise and worship to God, an occasion of good news and glad tidings of good things. So, uh, here's what I want us to do uh, uh, to commemorate that occasion. I want you to take out your songbooks, turn to number 495, and would you stand with me as we sing Joy to the World together? Number 495, Joy to the World. Uh, we're going to hold uh, the end of that second line where it says, uh, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Uh, uh, at that part of the line, we're going to hold that for longer than what it says. So just, just watch me as we sing that together. Okay, 495. Kingdom, joy to the world.
symbolism in that song. Uh, I always almost get choked up in the third verse because it talks about and symbolizes Jesus undoing the curses of Genesis chapter 3. That all of the sorrows that have come about because of sin, represented in the thorns and thistles and difficulties that we have as human beings, all of those things are going to be undone by this one who was promised. And so as we think about rejoicing at the birth of Jesus, that's the first thing, the first reason why we should rejoice at His birth. We rejoice at His birth, number one, because the fullness of times has come. And that begins going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. If you want to turn back there with me, Genesis chapter 3. Uh, I had a professor in college who used to say, if it weren't for Genesis chapter 3, we wouldn't need the rest of the Bible. And that's kind of one of those truism sorts of statements, but what he meant is, without the sin here, things would still be carrying on with perfection, with fellowship with God. But in Genesis chapter 3, we see that Adam and Eve sin, and beginning in verse 14 down through verse 19, there are curses that are placed upon the serpent, upon the woman, and upon Adam the man. Notice with me in verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. But notice verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There it is the first of dozens and dozens of messianic prophecies where God says, I am going to solve this problem. And how exciting is it when the fullness of all of those times actually comes? Uh, Steph and I took an awesome trip for our 15th uh, wedding anniversary. But I'll be honest about that trip for months. I, I didn't think about it much at all except for making the necessary plans for us to go on it. There was, there was just too much to do before then. And, and sure, there were moments of hope and anticipation, but, but not really joy until we got to the airport and we were sitting at our gate and our plane was on time. And I could feel coming over my face this stupid childlike grin, knowing that the moment we'd been waiting for for so long was finally there. And all of us, all of us know what that experience is like. 
where we are planning for something, where we're working towards something, where we're anticipating something. And how joyous is the moment when it finally comes. God started working out this plan to bring Christ to earth, a plan that He had from before the foundation of the earth. He started working out that plan from the first moment of sin and these curses that are placed upon the world. And so many things had to be revealed and accomplished and overcome with with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and David and the prophets and more. All of those things had to be worked together by God until the right time, at the right moment, under the right circumstances for His Son to come, for the Messiah to come at the fullness of times. And now, that first of dozens and dozens and dozens of prophecies about the Messiah were about to be fulfilled. Turn in your New Testament to Galatians chapter 4. This is the way the Apostle Paul puts it, and that's where we stole this phrase. In Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of as sons. And so all of God's working and plans through the centuries were finally coming to fruition there as we read in Luke chapter 2. There was so much that had been done. And I think that's hinted at to a certain degree in Luke chapter 2. If you turn back to Luke chapter 2, and maybe you want to mark that passage, that's what we'll be coming back to primarily throughout the lesson. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 11, did you notice what the angels said For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, it's the city of David, and that was foretold that it was going to be in Bethlehem, and the Jews understood that. When Herod asked the Jewish leaders and the scribes, hey, where is the Messiah going to be born? They understood the city of David in Bethlehem. But it is the city of David which shows that he is from this kingly line. As Luke and Matthew both tell us through their genealogies that this has been worked out through this family of Abraham, through David, to bring Jesus about. But now, the moment was almost here. It was starting. And if you think about it, after waiting for thousands of years from this first promise that is made to man, to Adam and Eve in the garden, waiting thousands of years doesn't seem like... uh, Waiting 30 more years would be very long, does it? 30 more years is nothing after waiting for millennia. And so we rejoice at His birth because the fullness of times has come. And secondly, we rejoice at His birth because this Savior is for all. This is a Savior for all mankind. If you're still there in Luke chapter 2, notice again what they say in verse 10. The angel says, Do not be afraid... For behold, I bring to you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A couple of things there. This is good news for all people because He's a Savior for all people. And and, and I love the way they phrase it. There is born to who? Born to Mary? Born to Joseph? Born to you. 
and born to me, born to all of us, born to mankind, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. If we drop down to verse 14, as the heavenly host praises God, what do they say? Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. It is peace on earth, goodwill toward all men. And we see this even more eight days later. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 25, when Jesus goes on the eighth day to be circumcised and presented there at the temple, in verse 25, Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, before he saw the Messiah. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people to Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Well, wouldn't you? I mean, we probably, all of those of us who are parents, we had that uh, experience where somebody gets a little too forward, you know, with our children, and they just, they pick them up and they take them off, and they're talking about them and all those things. But to be here in the temple, and for this man to take Jesus into his arms and say this about him, that would cause all to marvel. And one of the most marvelous things about it is what he says, that this is for all peoples a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. From the very beginning, Jesus was intended to be a Savior for all, and that includes a Savior for you and a Savior for me. Uh, This is seen even in his humble birth. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 and 2, talks about how the Messiah was going to have no stately form. There was not going to be any glory or majesty or comeliness in him so that we should desire him. And that truth starts with his physical birth. This Jesus was not born as a savior for the elite. He was not born in some palace somewhere. And he's not even born just as a savior for the Jews. I mean, you read the account uh, for yourself this week that Jesus was born of a woman who became pregnant before she was married. And we know nothing really of Mary's family and their support or lack of of her, but the text is strikingly silent on that point. We know Mary's father's name and that she went to stay with her cousin Elizabeth after she became pregnant. We know that she was a righteous person, But whether or not that was due to her parents, or even if her parents were still alive and in the picture, we don't know any of those things. And as we read through the Gospels, we see that Jesus is is born in a barn and placed in a feed trough for his bassinet. His earthly father was a blue-collar laborer. And it is not kings, at least not initially, who come to worship him and give him glory and honor. It is shepherds, common men. He was not who most expected, certainly not who the rulers expected him to be. But Mark chapter 12 and verse 37 tells us that the common people, people like you and me, they heard him gladly. 
And so we rejoice at his birth because he is and was always intended to be a savior for all. And then third and finally, we rejoice at his birth because his birth is what ultimately would lead to his sacrifice. If you're still there in Luke chapter 2, turn back again to verse 11. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He was intended to be one who was a Savior. And we remember, if we drop down to chapter 2 and verse 33, they marvel at the things spoken by Simeon. But in verse 34, then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against, yes, a sword will pierce through your soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Jesus came to reveal hearts and to save those, to rise up those who would submit themselves to Him. There was praise and glory as the Holy Spirit saw fit to talk about the birth of Jesus and in Luke and in Matthew. But it was revealed to set up what happened on the cross. If you turn back to Matthew's Gospel, to Matthew chapter 1, we did not talk this morning about the angel that appeared to Joseph. We talked about the one that appeared to Zechariah or Zacharias and the one that appeared to Mary. We turn back to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18 beginning. Matthew in his Gospel says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about those things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus, which means Savior or saves or God saves. It's the name Joseph. Uh, uh, Joshua from the Old Testament. For he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And ultimately, that's exactly what they did. And they named him Jesus, and we know him as Emmanuel, the one who is God with us. It would have been an occasion of joy for Joseph and Mary to to just bring a baby into the world, right? I mean, to have a healthy child would have been an occasion for joy. But Jesus was meant for the whole family of mankind. He came into our lives as well as theirs. And the good news of the birth of Jesus is that God is dwelling with us, but also that God came to forgive our sins on the cross so that we could dwell with Him. And that, brothers and sisters, is where the emphasis is placed in the rest of the New Testament. For too many in religion today, the baby Jesus is their favorite Jesus. He is harmless to them and unchallenging to their lives. 
And what many need to do is they need to turn away from the manger and to what the New Testament writers emphasized to the cross. And I think certainly that's true of the examples that I used at the beginning of this lesson, isn't it? If the draft of Victor Wimbenyama is the highest point of his career, then it will be a complete disappointment to all of us who are Spurs fans. If the birth of our child is the best memory we have of their life, then that means something has gone terribly wrong. And so too with Jesus. We have to have joy beyond his birth. As F. Lagard Smith said, singing carols about his birth means little if they do not bring into our lives the joy of reconciliation with God. Now, I celebrate. I celebrate Jesus' birth. But I don't celebrate Christmas as a religious holiday. And more importantly, we as a local church don't celebrate Christmas as a religious holiday. And, and that might be surprising to some, whether here in person or joining us on the live stream. Uh, I've had people talk to me about that, knowing that I'm a preacher. You know, hey, I drove by your building. You know, where's, where's the manger scene? Are you going to have any special services? Where's all of that? You know, everybody does that. And the short and long answer as to why we don't do that here at Timberland Drive, beyond all the rabbits we could chase about, you know, pagan holidays and incorrect times of year, those are all really ancillary issues. We don't celebrate Christmas because they didn't celebrate Christmas in the New Testament. And God doesn't tell me, or more specifically, He doesn't tell us as a local church to celebrate the birth of Jesus on a regular basis. And maybe, maybe we've taken that too far sometimes, and we're afraid to celebrate this moment that deserves celebration and joy. That shouldn't be the case, and hopefully we have pointed out the joy that should be found in it tonight. But let me say this clearly. Jesus' wonderful, miraculous, joyous birth is only, only really important as it is related to his death on the cross. And maybe you think that's an overstatement, but let me put it this way. If Jesus was born, but he didn't die for our sins on a cross, then we would still be in our sins. And it is only that death that is the only thing that we are commanded to regularly commemorate. Uh, you know the passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in all likelihood, 1 Corinthians 11, as the Apostle Paul is having to correct all sorts of issues with the church in Corinth. They, they had some real issues with their conduct during the Lord's Supper, the way they were observing those things, what they had turned it into, their attitudes toward one another. And so what the Apostle Paul does is he just goes back to the example that this is what Jesus did and this is what you ought to be doing too. In verse 23 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Um, and you can read about this in Matthew and Luke that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That is what we're supposed to remember. That's what we're supposed to commemorate. That is what we are supposed to uh, proclaim. 
And clearly this is in the setting of a local church, back there in verse 18 of chapter 11. When you come together as a church, verse 20, therefore when you come together in one place, verse 33, therefore my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And that is why we as a local church commemorate. Because this event, the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus is the most important event or series of events, the only event that we are supposed to commemorate in this way every first day of the week. Now, you have the authority to personally celebrate all sorts of things. Celebrate your kids' birthdays to your heart's content and other things. The Old Testament is filled with religious holidays and apparently uh, early Christians who were from a Jewish background celebrated some of those holidays. If you turn to Romans chapter 14, uh, Romans chapter 14. Look in verses 5 and 6, Romans 14 and verse 5. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not, he does not eat and gives God thanks." So what we see here is that there were Jewish Christians who observed all sorts of religious holidays. And, and the issue is not religious days. The Old Testament is filled with, with yearly religious holidays. Several are specified in the Law of Moses. Uh, the Feast of Passover would immediately come to mind. Uh, everybody dressed up like they dressed on the original Passover. They ate what they ate. They prepared the lamb and the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs. And they were supposed to answer their children when questioned, telling the story of what God had done for them and bringing them out of Egypt. Fifty days later was the Feast of Weeks that we know as the, the day of Pentecost. In the fall, there was the Feast of Booths every year where they'd make a little tent dwelling that they would stay in to remember their wandering in the wilderness and, and other holidays. Of course, they had a weekly holiday every Sabbath where they wouldn't work and they would remember God's provisions for them. And God added to those holidays even after the law was given. The Feast of Purim was instituted in Esther chapter 9. And the traditions of feasting and exchanging presents and giving gifts to the poor are still practiced uh, along with other traditions that have developed through the centuries by Jews today. And there were other man-made holidays as well. The Feast of Dedication that we see in the New Testament, more commonly known today as Hanukkah which celebrated the success of the Maccabean Revolt. Uh, that was a feast that wasn't instituted until the 400 years of silence. Uh, Judas Maccabees in around 164 B.C. instituted this feast. As prophesied by the prophet Daniel, the temple and city of Jerusalem were taken by the Greek ruler Antiochus Epiphanes in the year 167. And he killed 400 inhabitants, he sold 400 more as slaves, uh, excuse me, 40,000 more as slaves, and he sacrificed a pig on the altar of burnt offering and sprinkled its blood all over the temple. And so the city and the temple re were recovered three years later by the Maccabeans, and the temple was purified, which led to that holiday that is actually mentioned in John chapter 10, 22 through 24. They celebrated all sorts of holidays, religious holidays. 
But I would give us this warning. New Testament Christianity is not built around physical things. Religious holidays, sacred sites, holy buildings, and special objects in a box somewhere. I've been to the Holy Land, quote-unquote, and it was super cool. If you get a chance to go, go. But I'm not more spiritual. I'm not a better Christian for having gone. And there is no pilgrimage required each year or even in a lifetime for us to go to some place where Jesus was. We aren't even sure about how many of the places where those things happened, including the spot of Jesus' birth. Now, the Jews had that. They had special holidays and special places and sacred sites and holy objects in the temple and in the covenant box with the remains of the Ten Commandments and Aaron's rod that budded in a container of manna. But that wasn't. And it still isn't supposed to be Christianity. Christianity is a spiritual religion that is fundamentally about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I celebrate His birth. And I rejoice in times like these when we get to study it together. But I remember and am motivated by His death, burial, and resurrection. And everything that that means for me and for all mankind. Turn to one last passage, to Luke chapter 24. Luke begins his gospel by talking about the birth of Jesus and the rejoicing that they had and we should have at his birth. But he ends his gospel this way. Before Jesus ascends back into heaven, this is what he says. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, And thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. That's what he had to do. That's what he came to do. That's what he was born to do. And, in regard to us, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And so we preach that that you have the opportunity to repent of your sins, to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus when you go down into a watery grave of baptism, that you can rise having your sins remitted, your sins forgiven. The remission of your sins is possible because Jesus came. He was incarnated. He was born of a woman. But even more because He lived a perfect life and gave a perfect sacrifice on a cross. And if you need to be born again in that same manner, there is nothing that would make us happier than for you to come and be made a child of God. And we encourage you to do so as together we stand and as we sing.